take a survey this morning. Just curious to know where everybody is standing on their Christmas shopping. Um, I don't know if you braved this weekend or, or, or water. Maybe you were one of the few that uh, actually uh, have your Christmas shopping done. I came across a survey by NPD groups asking people the question, uh, 2,403 customers in September were asked the question, when they would be finished with their, when they plan to be finished with their Christmas shopping, and immediately in the survey, this is in September, two percent said that they were already through with their Christmas shopping. Now that is, uh, they're either really skimpy people and they don't buy people gifts, or I don't, I don't know. I just can't put my arms around that you would be finished uh, with two percent. Two percent said that they were already finished uh, with their Christmas shopping. Seven percent said that they would be finished before Thanksgiving. Surprising enough. 2% said they would finish on Thanksgiving weekend. And so there's a whole lot of shopping that has gone on even before the weekend. That's 11% already done. Now, how many of y'all are already done with your Christmas shopping? Thank you. I see one hand. All right. You are, you are disciplined, you are focused. I don't know what it is, Kristen, but you got it done, and uh, I, I, I'm proud of you. Now, how many of y'all will be shopping on Christmas Eve? All right, more of you, all right, will be shopping on Christmas Eve. Will you fit into the 34% of the rest of Americans that will be shopping on Christmas Eve? So that's actually more common than those early shoppers out there. That happened. You know, isn't it amazing that when you start thinking about Christmas in October or September or before September, it's just amazing to me how a Christmas is such a major player in our economy, in our thinking, this whole gift exchange thing. It's huge. It, it just kind of, it, it takes over itself. And then we talk about, oh, to have the Christmas spirit. You know, I'm sorry, but if you're doing all that Christmas shopping on Thanksgiving, the, the day after Thanksgiving, and you're having bomb threats at a local Walmart store, and, uh, and people are getting pepper sprayed in stores fighting over gifts, and there's robberies in, in front of Walmart stores, I, I'm afraid that's not the spirit of Christmas that I'm looking for. But it appears to me that in our culture that it's becoming crazier and crazier as it goes along. And uh, I, I'm all about the gift exchange. Hey, listen, my love language is gifts, all right? So I, I'm one who goes out and I shop early, and I'm always looking, and I'm giving Lori gift ideas. Uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's an idea for other people, of course, and also for myself. But uh, it's, it's my love language. And so from one love language person uh, that understands gifts, I, I kind of come to this season with a lot of excitement. Uh, yes, the Jesus gift ultimately is the gift of all. In fact, I want to take the world in which we live, and I want us to just kind of compare that. Because the way you go, or the way I go out looking for a Christmas gift, and then when I think about the beautiful, powerful, amazing gift of God's Son, I, I think there's some things that we could draw in, in some comparison. Now again, the bomb threats and the pepper spray. No comparison. I can't find any biblical references or any parallels at all for any of that kind of stuff. But maybe we can take a little bit of our Western idea of gift exchange and maybe we can take the Scriptures and maybe we can understand because we're all about the gift. Maybe we can understand the gift a whole lot better. Because I think whenever you go out shopping for a gift, you're a lot like me. You want to make sure it fits, even if you're re-gifting it, all right? 
Even if it's a regifted gift. Now, how many of y'all have ever regifted a gift? All right. A lot more of you have done that than we would be shopping on Christmas Eve. You know, but you, you, you even in, when you're shopping or when you're gifting or regifting or whatever, you want it to fit. There's a fit. You, you don't regift a size six to a size eight person, all right? You don't do that, all right? You, you, you try to make sure it fits that person that you're, that you're giving to. So gifts are costly. You know, you know, again, you kind of hopefully you set a budget. Let's do it now if you haven't already done it. Uh, you set a budget because so many people get burnt at this time of year, get in over their heads, and it takes them until summer to pay it off, and then vacations come on. So they're constantly, it's the, it's the tail wagging the dog in life. And so please, but, but, but gifts are costly. And so set that budget. But, you know, who are you going to give? And many times you will give a more valuable gift, a more costly gift, based on the person that you're giving it to. You're not going to spend probably $400 for the dirty Santa gift at the office party. Probably not going to do that. Probably going to think as cheap and what can I re-gift from last year's office party or something like, a lot like that if you, if you give the gift away. Also, gifts are meaningful. When you look for that gift, you, you kind of want something that, that says something. That says something about the person. That says something about how you feel about that person. That meaningful gift. I mean... Every year you get the sobby, mushy, mushy, kissy, kissy commercials on television at Christmas time that zales. This is how you say it. You say it, you know, uh, with this. What was that? The kiss begins with zales or, or uh, huh? Okay, that's K. Okay, I'm picking on K now. Uh, so whatever it is, I mean, you got all these different expressions out there. You want it to be meaningful. You want it to say something. Uh, then there is, and this is so few. Then there's the perfect gift. You know the perfect gift? You know, when you can give a perfect gift, you may only give a perfect gift to that special somebody maybe only once in their life. I mean, seriously. I mean, I mean meaningful gifts, hopefully you'll give every year. You'll look, you'll think, you'll, you'll really shop it through. It won't be that last-minute thing. But really, that perfect gift, you may only get one or two of those in, in your lifetime. That perfect gift is that gift that says everything. That, that gift that is meaningful, it's costly, it fits. It's, it's all of that rolled up into one. And again, there's only so many perfect gifts out there for that perfect person, that special someone. And so how is it that you kind of find that perfect gift? We're giving a gift, and I believe it is. I hope kids think it is. This year we're giving our kids three of the same gifts, and I believe from my heart that it is the perfect gift. They don't know what it is. They don't know the cost. They don't have a clue and all that kind of stuff. And so, But I believe that this gift that we will give them this year for Christmas, and I can look back over past Christmases, and it won't mean dollar value. Not, only, not all the time does the dollar value mean that much, but what this gift says, and this once-in-a-lifetime gift, is going to be kind of that, that kind of gift. You know what I mean? When you have that perfect gift. Well, over the next five Sundays, including today, we're going to look at that, that gift that fits, that perfect, costly gift, that meaningful gift of Jesus. And just how He fits that criteria. How He is that perfect, fitted, meaningful, costly gift. And we're not going to look at Him just as the Jesus meek and mild laying in a manger. We're going to hopefully... 
looking in a much broader spectrum of understanding the, the gift of Christmas, the true gift. If you have your Bibles, be open to the, to the book of Luke. Now you, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the four Gospels, and sometimes I don't kind of give the, 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 the 30,000 foot overview, but I feel like I need to. When you, when you come to the Gospels, you really are looking at the, the, the historical account of Jesus' life. The stories that are told are, are told by these guys, these first-hand witness accounts of Matthew, Mark. Mark was the first one written. Many people believe it was Pete, Peter whose his account, that John Mark was actually maybe the author, but he was listening to Peter give his accounts of walk, walking and being with Jesus. And if you remember Jesus and Peter, they were, they were, they were close. He had, Jesus had his 12, but then he had his three, and John and Peter were, were two of that, that really tight three. And, and Peter is he's kind of the first one. He lays the foundation. He becomes the template of which Matthew then picks up and says, yes, but I remember this. There are four harmonious accounts, but very different, but harmonious accounts. As Matthew writes it out, and he's taking Mark's template, if you will, and he's kind of saying, yes, but I remember it was even, even more said here and more said here as he writes it to the Jewish believers. And then, and then you've got Dr. Luke who writes, and he writes with such detail. The most comprehensive gospel account of Jesus' life is found in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, and obviously more written about it in there and contained in there. But John's Gospel comes later. Comes much later. At the end of his life, probably in the city of Ephesus, that he was writing the Gospel of John. He's remembering that, that accounts, those times of living with Jesus. Again, one of the closest disciples of Jesus and he's writing it out and he's retelling the story. He's filling in a whole lot of gaps that the other ones don't have. Again, they complement each other, but they're like different stories being told, all of the same central character, and that character being Jesus. And then you, you kind of come, in fact, Mark concludes so much, and you come to Luke chapter chapter 4, and this is following Jesus' uh, Jesus's temptation experience, and he was led into the, in, into the, the wilderness and... He was led by the Spirit there, and he was taken care of by the Spirit there. And then he's ministered by the Spirit whenever he leaves. And in verse 14, it says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of Galilee. You see constantly Jesus being led under the influence of the Spirit of God being upon him to Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues being glorified by all. So Jesus' ministry just takes off. And what happens between verse 15 and verse 16, many scholars say that, that what John comes back and he writes from chapter 1 of John to verse 19 to chapter 4, verse 45, you find John filling in a whole lot of the gap right there. Because between Jesus' baptism and temptation and him going back up to Galilee, there was some other stuff that happened there. There was the encounter with Nicodemus. There was the first miracle in the Cana of Galilee. And there's different, there's different things that happen where Jesus' ministry is just mushrooming. And then you, you, you go on down and you, you find uh, it, it, that Jesus goes back to his hometown. It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And he was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read the scroll. And the prophet of Isaiah was given to him. And he enrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
Because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. And He has set liberty... And, and, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there. Now verse 2 of, of Isaiah chapter 61, which is where he's reading from, actually goes on. He talks about the vengeance of God. But what, what Jesus does here is very crucial to understanding his ministry, to understanding who he is. What Jesus does here is he says, listen, We are living in a day of grace. We are living in a day of God's favor. That's what I want to talk about. And then he sits down, he rolled it up in the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his marvelous words, that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not? Is not this Joseph's son? Now you can go on and you can read how that pretty much what happens at Jesus' time here in his ministry begins to be indicative of even his ministry today. There were some who were swooned by Jesus and marveled at Jesus. And there were those who became skeptics of Jesus at this point. And that continues to be the track that people take to this very day. Some people are caught by Jesus, in love with Jesus, following Jesus, and other people are skeptical of Jesus. And that's exactly what happens in the following verses. But I want to key in on Jesus, what He said about Himself, and how He starts His ministry. Because there's one thing we have to understand about what Jesus did here. He didn't accidentally read Isaiah 61. It gives us clearly in Scripture that He went to Isaiah 61. He wanted to read this text. And then he sits down and he, what does he say? He says, today, this has been fulfilled. You've got to understand, for 735 years, they have been waiting for that scripture to be fulfilled. For 735 years, they have been anticipating one day God would do what he said he would do from the prophet's lips. That he would send someone, he would anoint someone, that he would send this this someone special. And the someone special would do amazing things in people's lives. He would bring them back together again, the broken pieces. He would give them the riches of his glory. He would set the captive free. He would give sight to the blind. That's what Jesus did. And Jesus says here on this day, he said, Today it's been fulfilled. So don't let anybody tell you in all this modern day historical revisionist movement that we have that Jesus didn't declare himself to be God. Because he absolutely did. It wasn't the Nicene Council in in 325 AD that said, oh, Jesus became God then. No, no, no. He was already God. He knew he was God. He declared he was God. He declares today this is fulfilled. Now what was fulfilled? The passage in Isaiah is now complete. What does it say there? Notice there, verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. He has anointed me. Now this is a very key phrase that you've got to kind of zero in on. Jesus declares Himself to be anointed. We're going to come back to that and, and, and focus on that some more. But I want to ask the question today, how does Jesus fit who we are? How is he the perfect 
fit, the perfect match, the perfect gift, the, the costly, meaningful gift. Of, and this kind of this message lays the foundation for all of them. And I just want to say that Jesus is tailor made. No, no, let me take that back. Jesus isn't tailor made for you. You're tailor made for Jesus. And it's not you going out and finding the garment of Jesus and trying Jesus on and see if he looks good on you and fits good. But you realizing that Jesus is the hole that you need to fill. He's the void that needs to be there. He is the fit that we need in our life. And here's a life principle for us that we just need to understand. We need to embrace the fact that we're messed up people in a messed up world. And that messed upness of us is the very thing that begs and longs for a relationship. For something deep and something meaningful. And just to understand this, that we we miss the mark constantly in our life. And understanding that is, is important, that we miss God's mark for our life. He's got, he's got a plan, in, 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 again, again in Scripture, in Romans 3.23, he talks about that, we've, that everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says that there's none righteous, not even one. And, and then even in Ecclesiastes 7.29, it says that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. See, I have to realize, you have to realize, that my fallen state ravishes my soul. It pollutes my spirit. It sears my conscience. It distorts my judgment. And it misleads my path. It, register that. That what happened when these bomb threat happened this week and what happens on Black Friday and the craziness of our culture, that's a messed up world we lived in, that we live in. With messed up people. And I'm, I'm a part of the messed up world. And I have to own that. And, and because of that, here's the second thing to realize. We just got to lay the foundation here. Kind of presuppositions, if you will. Is that our fallen self creates a barrier between perfect God and us. There's a barrier that, that, that is formed there. Because we're messed up, this world is messed up, and God isn't. There's a barrier that kind of wedges itself in there. In Isaiah 59 verse 2, in the New Living Translation says it like this. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, He has turned away and will not listen anymore. And I, and I just want to say this, that until a person realizes that they've been cut off, that there is a barrier, that God doesn't hear their prayers, they're, they're playing some kind of mumbo-jumbo psychology in their head. And it's just, it's just the best thing I can do is in this messed up, messed up world is realize I'm messed up and I'm contributing to the mess up and i got to find an answer to this. Insert Jesus. Because if I'm messed up and this world is messed up and my neighbors are messed up, my wife and my husband's messed up and, and my children are messed up, I don't care how perfect my grandchildren are, they're messed up. And I don't care how perfect your great, 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 great they're messed up. And it's, we, we live in this kind of state, and so the only way is we have to find that fit, that, 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 that answer to that messed up, messed up world that we live in. And I want to propose to you today that Jesus is that fit in this world in which we live. 
And so I want to now take you again back to that verse that he said in verse 18. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. He has anointed me. He has anointed me. What does that mean? He has anointed me. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus Christ, that isn't His first and last name. It's certainly not a cuss word, okay? I'll promise you that. But it's not His first and last name. Jesus is His name. Christ is who He is. Jesus, the Christ. In fact, the, the, the Greek word there, kariso, is the where we get that word. And, and it's also the word Messiah in Isaiah 61. It's where we get that word. So Jesus was saying that He is the anointed one. I'm the anointed one. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one. All right? Now, again, I know I may be speaking to the choir today. I may be speaking to the church members today. And that may not be new news to you. But I want us to understand, every time we say Jesus Christ, every time we declare Him, we are declaring this is the long-awaited one of God. The long-anticipated one that God has anointed. And what did He anoint Him to do? And that's where the fit comes into play. He came for the poor. He came for the captive. He came for the blind. He came for the oppressed. You think, well, Mike, I don't fit any of that. I don't feel poor. I don't feel oppressed. I don't feel captive. I'm not blind. I can see. And, you know, I think one of the things that we have, one of our problems is we have a very deep reality, but we live in a very shallow consciousness. We have a very deep God. In fact, He's infinite. Straight line, okay? We have a very deep God, but we have a very shallow decision-making process. In fact, Satan wants to make us shallow. and wants to only think of the physical. Because I think what, what we need to do in this Christmas season, in this life that we're living, is we, just need, we need to look deep inside. Because Jesus, I think, can fit me in every single one of these areas. Not only is he physically, did he heal the blind, did he help the, the, the captive, yes, but Jesus spiritually is touching our lives. And there are four measurements that if you want to see if Jesus fits you today, then you might measure yourself by them. And one is that in my poverty, I'm made rich. That Jesus actually in my poverty, I thought, oh my God, I don't feel impoverished. I got a job, my wife has a job, we got money, we got Christmas gifts, we got, we got big plans, we got big vacations. Think deeper. Think to your soul. Think deep in your spirit. Impoverished. See, I, I'm afraid that we, until we reach the end of ourselves, we'll never know the depths of God. Until we realize that I am impoverished, I am broken, I am bankrupt. What we do, listen, in our culture, what we do is we take it and we put plaster on our brokenness. We cover it up with plastic, our poverty. We insert nice cars, big homes, big paychecks, and we call ourselves whole and complete. In the reality, we go through life impoverished in our spirit. But what Jesus wants to do, and He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, every, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Wow. You mean there's not one bit of God's eternal, infinite self 
that I have access to, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, we can't contain them. That makes me look like a pauper. If I only understood the depth of my Savior, then I would understand the wealth of my inheritance. That I truly am impoverished. And all the plastic and the cars and the homes and the, and the trips and the whatever, the whatever that I put on top is all masking. That I need to understand that I have to come, first of all, to my brokenness. I have to be, I have to, it's impossible to get people saved until you first get them lost. Until they realize that in and of themselves is not enough. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What happens to that person? This is the first beatitude. What happens to that person? Say it with me. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not until I'm bankrupt. It's not until I'm impoverished. It's not until I realize I have a need. I can't fill it. I have a need and only God can fill it. Until I reach that point, Augustine said it like this, sufficiency of, the sufficiency of my merit is to know that in my merit is not enough. It's not sufficient. I, I can't in and of myself. I can't do it in and of myself. It, it's not until there, it, there is brokenness and then comes wholeness. There's poverty, then comes riches. Is what Jesus said when he said, unless a, cor- a kernel of grain falls in the ground and dies, you won't have life. So please look very carefully at me and wake your spirit up for just a moment today. And look past the trees and the tinsel and the Christmas spirit of this place and look inside yourself and ask yourself, have I ever looked at the bank account of my soul and seen it bankrupt. Because I'm convinced until a person feels the bankruptcy of their own spirit, they will never know the abundant riches of Christ. They will take Christ and they'll put it with their job. They'll take Christ and they'll put it with their wealth. They'll take Christ and put it with everything else. And they'll prop up Christ. And Christ says, I don't want anything to do with that. The second way that Christ fits us is in my captivity, I'm set free. I'm set free in my captivity. In fact, in in Isaiah 61, verse 1, he goes on and he says that Jesus didn't read from. He said, he binds up the brokenhearted. That's what Jesus does. Sets the captive free. He binds up the brokenhearted. And I just want to say in in, in my time, as, as you look at this word captivity, and you look at that word, that word actually is a, prisoner of war term that, that Isaiah used and that, that Jesus used. And do you realize that people are walking through this world prisoners of war? That they're held captive in this world? In their spirits, they're captive to things? Now again, we, again, we whitewash it, we, we cover it over, we try, to, we try to get it out. But I'm convinced in my 21 years of ministry and dealing with people, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that 90% of the people in this world are walking around wounded. Captive to their wounds. That they're only a scratch away from a scab bleeding 
profusely. That they're living with wounds. And I'm looking at every one of you in this room today and saying, listen, please look inside your spirit. Because you don't want Jesus meek and mild laying in a manger when Jesus wants to be the balm of Gilead, wants to be the the, the, the medicine that saves your soul. He wants to set your cap- the captivity free. John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart, he said, Every man carries a wound. I have never met a man without one. No matter how good your life may, may have seemed to you, you live in a broken world full of broken people. Your mother and father, no matter how wonderful, couldn't have been perfect. She is a daughter of Eve and he is a son of Adam. So there's no crossing through this country without taking a wound. And every wound, whether it is uh, uh, assaultive or passive, delivers with it a message. The message feels final and true, absolutely true, because it is delivered with such force. Our reaction to it shapes our personality our very, in very significant ways. From, the, from, from that flows the false self. I don't have time to unpack it. Most of the men you meet are living out a false self, a pose, which is directly related to his wound. I'm absolutely thoroughly convinced, and I am spending these years after 20-something years in ministry, I'm spending most of my time with men talking about wounds. And the problem is, is most men don't want to go there. Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. Read Romans 8, 37 with me. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Read it with me. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Romans 8, 1, read it with me. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The sad reality, this is biblical truth that many people will say, I believe, but personally do not because of wounds, because of pain, they held captive. It wasn't until six years ago when I met with a life coach in Waxahachie, Texas. I just like saying that name. That I realized how much the wounds of my life were shaping my life. Six years ago, I have experienced the freedom in Christ in the past six years that I did not experience in the first years of my life. I want to say there's a lot of captive people with a lot of wounds in this world. The third way that Jesus comes as our perfect fit is in my blindness I can see. Again, you might quickly write that off as I'm not blind, I can see. I I, I have perfect vision or, 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 or whatever. I do too with these glasses blindness I can see. He talks about there that he is recovering sight for the blind and Jesus did this a lot. It was one of his most common miracles. If you look, he, Matthew 9, he heals two blind men. Mark 8, Jesus uh, uh, actually spits on a guy's eyes. Uh, you know, take that for, uh, for a healing trick. Uh, and then in, in John 9, he, he actually spits on the ground and makes a mud pie, puts it on the guy's eyes, tells him to go wash at the pool of Siloam. 
And then Luke 18, he, he records the giving sight to, uh, to, to Bartimaeus and his friend. Four gospel accounts, all four of them record Jesus doing miracles of healing sight. Was, but was Jesus a glorified optometrist? Is that really all he was? Or did he help with a deeper blindness? I'm convinced that every one of these has a deeper element in our shallow world. We must go deeper. And that Jesus came to heal the blindness of our own souls, of our own spirits. If you don't believe me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul pointed out the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Did you see what, what, what is Satan blinding us from? From seeing. Seeing what? The light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Blinded by Satan. We don't see the very depth of our Savior Jesus Christ. He's just a token. He's just a mantle. A piece of furniture you put out for Christmas. But He's so much more. He's deeper. He wants to set the captive free. He wants to give riches to the impoverished. He wants to help deeply. In the blindness of our own spirit. And Jesus himself, again quoting from Isaiah, said in John 12, 40, he says, He has blinded the eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts. I can't, I, I, if I had a week to unpack that, it wouldn't be enough time. Just understand that Jesus came to give us sight. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about when you think about a sibling, a friend, a family member, a child, when they're in a relationship that is unhealthy. But what are they blinded by? Love? Infatuation? And you watch it and you just see it untangling and unraveling and, and you see this other person that you love and you're in this unhealthy relationship and you think, oh my gosh, can I stand in the middle of the street and tell them no? Can I, can, can I get them off the bus? What, what, what do I need to do? And you just simply watch the train wreck happen. Anybody ever seen that happen? Alright? You know, the reality is that you can't do anything that's their blindness, and they have to have the shackles taken off. Maybe you can counsel them. Maybe you can help them in some way. But it is all a tool of Satan, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to get at us. I want you to read with me. Read out loud with me. John 10.10. 10. I call it the McDaniel Amplified Version, all right? This is a very famous passage of Scripture, and Jesus said this. He said, the thief comes only to steal your sight and kill your judgment. And destroy your future. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. You can insert in there anything you want. He will steal your life. He will steal your sight. He will steal your understanding. He will steal your, your purity. He will steal your integrity. He will steal. He didn't care what he'll steal. He'll steal it all. He wants to do that. He wants to kill your judgment. He wants to kill your character. He wants to kill your relationship. He wants to kill your life, your spirit. He wants to destroy your future. He wants to fill in the blank. He didn't care what it is. He just wants to take you down. And this is the beauty of the message of Christ is that if we're not blinded, we get Jesus. We get Jesus. And He becomes everything to us. Number four, the perfect fit of Jesus is that in my oppression, I am given life. 
says he came to set liberty to those who are oppressed. I know we can come in here and we can really do a good job posing with a false self. Refer to that phrase earlier. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this. But I live in my own skin. And I know what my own skin goes through. And feels and wrestles with. I can only imagine yours is much like mine. And that there are times in your life. And again, you can back it up to the wounds of the past. You can back it up to captivity to sin. You can back it up to the poverty of the spirit. You can back it up to the blindness that, that Satan puts on us. You can back it up to a lot of different things, but sometimes it just comes down to we're just oppressed by the devil. We just feel absolutely as if you're captive. And Jesus Christ came to give liberty to captives. To set us free from the oppression. And here's just the reality. If Satan can't possess you, he will oppress you. C.S. Lewis was talking about it whenever he said that the danger, the temptation out there in this world, there are two arrows when you come to this topic of the devil and Satan. And one is to disbelieve its existence. Then he's blinded you to it. The second is to make everything about the devil. And that's wrong too. So I'm not trying to say every time you have indigestion, it's the devil. All right? That was just all the turkey and the dressing that you ate this weekend. But there is the reality that he wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to devour you like a lion. He wants you. And Jesus Christ came to be the answer, to be the liberty to the oppressed. And I don't know where you are, and I don't know if you know Jesus at that depth level, or if Jesus is just the little token manger scene on the mantle. Or is he truly the depths of setting you free in your captivity and and giving you riches in your poverty? Is he that deeply in your life? I can remember growing up, and I can remember, you know, Christmas time was always fun. Every every child loves Christmas time. And I can remember being disappointed when I found out that, uh, well, anyway, I won't go there when he he wasn't real and all that stuff. But uh, uh, I'm still shocked over that one. But... um, the whole thing about uh, about Christmas and and the gifts and I can remember one time making this Christmas list and sharing it with everybody. I shared it with my grandmother, my dad, my mother. I shared it with everybody because hopefully, if I have just one, uh, this 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 is the gift. I get this gift for me, okay? And uh, and I, I had other things on there. Don't don't worry about that. But I mean, this was the top gift, the number one gift. I wanted this gift, and so I put it out there and. And I can remember going through the Christmas different gift exchanges, and I can remember the last one being at home, and the gifts were all open, and trash and paper and boxes everywhere, and I didn't get the gift. And it wasn't that big of a gift. I mean, it was, I mean, okay? I mean, kids come to me, my kids come to me with their list of gifts, I'm thinking, yeah, right. But I mean, this was just, it was a pretend dress-up police uniform, all right? I always wanted to be a cop when I was growing up, all right? Uh, right until God called me to the ministry. So that was what it was going to be. That's all it was. And I was so disappointed. And I remember my mother asking me, what's wrong? And I, and I said, well, I didn't get the gift. As a kid, disappointed with it all. I just said, I didn't get the gift. And she, of course, knew that the gift was there. And 
But what had happened in all of the tearing off of the paper and all of the throwing of the boxes, the gift got cluttered over. And remember, I can remember, and I'll, I looked for the picture last night, but I couldn't find it. But I can remember when I got the gift, and she got it, and she went, and she uncovered it, and she gave it to me. And the gift, and I, and I had it. It was the perfect gift of the Christmas season. And it fit. It was a uniform, and it fit. And then I thought about our world. We take the perfect gift of Christmas, and we don't even unwrap it. We don't even truly, 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 hear me, Christians, truly put him on. Instead, we walk around captive. Instead, we walk around oppressed. Instead, we walk around blind. Instead, we walk around impoverished. I want Christmas to be all, everything in for you and for me. And and maybe today, and we're going to have a response time, and the band's going to come, and we're going to sing, and it's just going to be a song. We're just going to sing over you. But maybe today, and the altar can be here, and Eric and I will be hanging out up here at the front, but it'll be one of those things that maybe, maybe, maybe today, you realize that, yeah, okay, yeah, years ago, I gave my life to following Jesus. But I'm still captive. I'm still captive to wounds and hurts. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still feeling so oppressed. I don't even have a joy in my life anymore. I don't know where you're at. But let's not go any further into this Christmas season without finding the gift fits. Whatever your need is. Captivity, he'll set you free. Oppression, he'll give you liberty. Blind, you're missing things. You're in the middle of a train wreck right now. He'll take the shackles off. You're impoverished. You feel bankrupt in your spirit. Get to know Jesus. And understand the heavenly blessings that he wants to give us. Would you pray with me? time. Go no further into this season than to mark it into a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've known Jesus as your Savior and He's filled you with the heavenly blessings of, of God, then great, but maybe you're still living captive to wounds and hurts that are shaping your personality, as Eldridge said, and maybe shaping your future. I don't know maybe holding you back. Maybe you feel blind. Like you can't see three feet in front of you. Just come. You don't know what to say, do. Just take Eric and I by the hand and just say, I don't know what to say or do, but I need I need to see again. I need to see for the first time. Just come and pray. Lord Jesus, set us free. Lord Jesus, give us sight. Lord Jesus, heal the wounds. Lord Jesus, open up the heavenly riches important in our life so that we can be complete.